And I was really very resentful because it was the morning of my grandson's bris. Um, they do the angiogram and he looks at me and says, I don't know how you're alive. There must be somebody up there who likes you. And uh, I have no question that it was the tefillahs of the people uh, in this room who davened for me and others across the world uh, that that's the reason I'm here this evening. And uh, it, was, uh, it was really a very difficult time for me and people you know, meet me today and they say should we still daven for you and I said yes but now for Parnosa because I missed a lot of time so. <laughs> I'm not looking for sympathy but if you know I'm selling some DVDs outside if anybody wants <laughs> anyway <laughs> I'm kidding of course um, if anyone wants to work on their humility and I'll tell you when you work in Kirov or in Torah humility is so important just be introduced after Rabbi Gottlieben and Rabbi Katz you know what I mean because <laughs> they spend 15 minutes on their introductions and all of their various accomplishments and then they say Rabbi Olavsky is a world famous speaker <laughs> for those who don't know a world famous speaker is someone with no job because <laughs> he's free to travel at any time <laughs> And sell DVDs, which will be outside. Anyway. Uh, for years I taught um, rabbis how to answer basic questions in Judaism. And I find that when the topic comes out of reaching out to people, people will say, what do I do if they ask me a question and I don't know the answer to it? Now, every godly dealt with this from one perspective. I want to deal with it from a different perspective. Because when you answer a question, you're not answering the question, you're answering the questioner. Yeah? There's a famous story of this uh, um, major educator who was meeting with the educators in the school, and he went around the room and he said, what do you teach? This one said, I teach English, I teach chemistry, I, I teach history. And at the end he says, you're wrong, you teach students. And that makes a big difference. The question is not, what's the right answer? What's the right answer for that person? And so I want to make a, a distinction from my experience uh, in this field. There are certain people to whom their entire life is dedicated to a question, and it is impossible to answer the question for them, because they are so invested in the question. Sometimes Holocaust survivors, uh, when they ask you about the Holocaust, it's an unanswerable question for them, because the question is their entire life. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to make a difference. I was in San Diego once, speaking to an audience, and this woman said, Rabbi, could you explain to me the Holocaust? And she points to her tattoo on her arm and says, I live through this, can you explain it? And I said, my goodness, my worst nightmare, you know? So there was this reformed rabbi who wrote a book, and the entire purpose of the book was to explain how no one can prove that there's a God. And someone said to me, why don't you write this guy and explain to him and I said, oh yeah, this guy's entire career is based on set proving there is no God. And I'm going to offer him something, he's going to say, ah, oh, I missed that. Well, I guess that's the end of my career. You know <laughs> Let me find something else to do. His entire life is dedicated to this question. There's nothing he can do for it. That's a very, very small percentage of people. Then there are people who are intelligent, thinking people who really care about a question and are willing to engage with you. Those were the people Rabbi Gottlieb was talking about. People who understand the difference between providing a proof and burden of evidence, which most of the people in this room probably had difficulty following. Yeah? Those are, that's the second group. The remaining 95%, which are the people that I work with, are people who really don't care about their questions. 
They just ask questions because they're asking questions. And I'm sure you've experienced this. You've had someone come and ask you a question. Oh yeah, then how come? And you actually know the answer to it. This is one that you read a book on it, you, you went to sure one that you really know the answer. And you start answering their question, and first they get this bored look on their face, and then they start to get annoyed, and then they say to you, why are you lecturing to me? And we're really shocked when this first happens, because we think, my goodness, you asked me the question, and I assume, therefore, that you care about the question. That was the mistake that you made. Most people don't even think about what their question is when they ask it, and when they do, they don't care about the answer. You can try this. I have done this on many occasions. People say to me things like, um, do you think Judaism is still relevant today? Yes. Really? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Here it is. <laughs> Don't you think that Judaism is unfair to women? No. You don't? No. Oh. <laughs> and that's about as far as it goes. I, I like to talk. I really do. You know, I, I don't get that opportunity with my children, so I travel the world. <laughs> talk about Chinuch Bandam, because the alternative is staying home and doing it. It's very hard. Anyway, but, um, you know, I love to talk, but I, it took me years to realize that most people who are asking a question don't even care about their own question. Forget about anything that you have to say. And all I do at times is even just acknowledge that a question took place, because they're not even sure of that, you know? And so, you know, but sometimes it's so easy to remove. It's, it's just, because it they don't care. Uh, isn't circumcision barbaric? No, barbarians don't do it. <laughs> times I've given that answer. <laughs> there was one time a person said, I read in the National Geographic, like anyone reads the National Geographic. <laughs> but if you just look at the pictures, you know what I mean? I read in the National Geographic about this African tribe. Okay, straight. <laughs> you know? Alright, so now I'll have to give you a different answer to remove the question that you really don't care about. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, uh, when, you, when you're faced with these things, it's just absolutely amazing. But, but sometimes that doesn't always work. <laughs> sometimes people want you to actually say something that looks like you answered their question. You know, not that they care that much, but you know. Um, here is the most effective tool that I will give you this evening. Rabbi Gottlieb gave you one of the best ones, which is I don't know. I have an even better one. It's what do you mean? Do you know that people haven't the slightest idea what question they just asked you? I gave this whole speech once to a group of B'nai Torah about how to answer questions. And then I said, okay, are there any questions? So a guy raises his hand. He's your guy. He says, okay, what about prayer? I said, you mean, why do we pray? Why do we pray in a set time, a set way? Why is it in Hebrew? Doesn't God already know what we want? Does, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, it just seemed like a good question. <laughs> he had no idea what his question was. 1995, there's an organization called Yavna Olami that makes what's called a Shabbat Olami for students. And the biggest one in the world is in Leeds University. And the chief rabbi at the time in England... Um, uh, John Hussacks was supposed to go to Leeds because it was the largest one. And the Queen asked instead if he would join her for the 50th anniversary of VE Day. 
And so he cans it on Leeds, and Leeds is, of course, the biggest one. So they called me. <laughs> so I called up the Queen and told her I wouldn't be coming. <laughs> I thought this was more important. And I go down to Leeds, and by Shabbos, you know, the Shabbos suit in the afternoon, this guy says to me, you know, the chief rabbi was supposed to be here. And I said, yes, I know that. And he said, if he came, I wouldn't have come. I said, why is that? He says, because I'm a progressive Jew. And the chief rabbi doesn't like progressive Jews. He refuses to recognize them as authentic. I said, oh, I, I see. He says, what's your position on progressive Jews? I said, well, I'm not sure, because that's a uniquely English experience. We don't have that in America. Is it like reform? No, it's not like reform. Is it like conservative? No, it's not like conservative. And it took us 15 minutes to conclude a few things. One is, he had no idea what progressive Jewry was. <laughs> Except that he was one, and he didn't like the chief rabbi because he didn't like progressive Jewry, even though he doesn't know what it is. And by the end of the meal, he decided he was going to give Chavez. Now, I, I don't even know how that happened. <laughs> and all I did was say, I don't know, what do you mean? You know, I just couldn't understand the question. We very often answer the question we think the person asked. You know? They give a classic example of this where a little boy comes to his mommy and says, Mommy, where do I come from? And parents always dread this particular question, and we bring out all of our little charts and you know, and you know, big B, little B, genetics, you know what I mean, and you know, whatever we can do to avoid answering the question. And uh, she finally says, Does that answer your question? She says, No. So he says, Well, what else do you want to know? So, well, Bobby says he comes from Philadelphia. Where do I come from? <laughs> You can save yourself a lot of aggravation by just asking, what do you mean? And I have to tell you how many times I've watched people completely fall apart. They look like John Kerry when they're trying to answer this question. You know, like just completely just, just you know, dissembling right before your eyes. You know, what do you mean? You know, and they, they don't have the ability to answer the, the simplest thing, you know. And, and, and I always say to them, well, tell me what your question really is, you know. This woman said to me once, uh, why is Jews so unfair to women? I said, what do you mean? She says, well, you know, they have this big machitza and I can't see. I said, why don't you sit up front? She said, that's a great idea, thank you. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion, you know? Now, I had a lot more to say on the subject, but, but I knew the person really didn't care. So why am I, you know, showing how much I'm, I need to say? Now, the average person, especially when they know something on a topic, we love to share that information, yeah? And Siyag uh, you know what I mean? You know, the best thing you can do is shahal smajwa, is keep your mouth shut, you know? And the less you say to answer it, the better you're going to be, right? So I think putting the emphasis on the other person, that's the most important. The next thing is, the hardest question to answer is the question you have not answered for yourself yet, right? In other words, if you yourself are troubled by this question, you're going to have a real hard time answering it for somebody else. When I taught Rabbanim, I said, you know, I gave an approach towards uh, answering questions, you know, uh, you know, women's questions, women's issues, you know. And I said, if in your heart of heart you're really a male chauvinist, don't answer this question because you don't believe it and it doesn't really make a difference, you know. So a person came back once and said to me, you know, I used one of your answers and a woman said that I was patronizing her. And I said, you know why? Because you were patronizing her. And she knew that. She's not stupid. You said the right things, but you didn't mean it. You know? He says, you mean it? 
I said, I'm one of six boys. There were no girls in my house. We had no gender-appropriate jobs. My mother's theme song was, it's the maid's night out. You know what I mean? <laughs> I learned how to cook and how to clean and how to do laundry and how to shop and how to you know, do all those sort of things because somebody had to, you know. My wife, of course, uh, my, my wife and mother-in-law here, my wife was raised to be a scholar. Shows you opposites attract, but um, you know. But I learned to do all these things. You know, I was a very popular buffer when I was invited out because you know my mother had trained me. You don't sit there. You know, you help clear off and you help this, you help this. And you know, and the balabais would always say, "No, no, no, my wife does that." I said, "I'm sorry, I wasn't brought up that way. I mean, I don't know how to sit for a meal." I noticed the wife never objected. It was only the husband who felt uncomfortable with this, you know what I mean? But no, I didn't feel that way. I didn't come from that perspective. So I was able to answer the question because people knew that I really meant it. But when a question really, you're not comfortable with it yourself, so I'll give you an example. Um, I heard this discussion once before Tishabov. This uh, journalist was interviewing an Orthodox and a Reformed rabbi. And he says, um, do you believe that Tishabov is still relevant today? And the, uh, the reform rabbi said, no, no, of course not, you know. He says, well, I'm going to mourn the destruction of a building 2,000 years ago. Look around Israel. Israel's being resettled and rebuilt. Look at how Jerusalem is built. It's larger than it's ever been in its history. Of course not. And the Orthodox rabbi said, yes, when there is sinat chinam, hatred in the world, don't you see Haredim who hate everybody? <laughs> I thought that was a loving comment. But, you know, don't you see how people hate each other? And as long as it's still hate, then the message of Tisha is still relevant. So he says, so you look forward to the rebuilding of the temple? He says, yes, I do. With animal sacrifices. <laughs> and you could hear him gag. He went like this. <clears throat> on the radio. And then he fell apart. I started to say, I mean, of course, there are different views on this, and one has to understand that there is a minority view that it'll only be from the vegetable kingdom, but of course, it wasn't really the whole way. So, yes, animals, yes, yes. And they said the room from you? No, of course not. <laughs> and I listened to that that time. This was uh, over 25 years ago. I heard this, and I said, but for the grace of God, so go I. Because in my heart of hearts, I've never really been that comfortable with Kurbanos. There's something about slitting the neck of the goat and catching the first blood as it spurts out and running through the blood, little bloody footprints to the Mizraeach and throwing on the blood and cutting it open and taking the insides out and carrying it up on a tray, you know. That always made me feel a little queasy, and I'm a Kohen, so... <laughs> actually had to deal with this, you know, on a personal level, but, uh, but I realized, oh my gosh, what would I do if someone asked me that question? I know what to say, I can say the words, but I don't feel it inside. So I realized the person I had to answer the question for first and foremost was myself, and I spent six months working on myself to be comfortable with it. Forget about the intellectual arguments, but to become comfortable with it. And when I was, a Kurdish Baruchel felt I was ready, and I do a you know, question and answer, and someone raises his hand and says, okay, Rabbi, what about animal sacrifices? <laughs> Uh, they do this terrible thing in, now in Ur Sameach, you know, uh, where instead of having an ask the rabbi, they have a stump the rabbi. 
posing questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes. Look at that, I'm getting 90% more blood flow to the heart. Is that impressive? Anyway. But, uh, but that's, the, uh, that's the idea. I could stump the rabbi, ask the rabbi a question that he can't answer, you know? What about the Holocaust? When I was younger and not as sensitive as I am today, you know, when people would ask this question, what about the Holocaust? I said, oh, the Holocaust is really important to you. I said, yeah, how many books have you read on the subject? What are you doing about the rise of neo-Nazism around the world today? Are you doing anything to prevent the genocide that's taking place in so many different places? No. You know why? Because you don't care about the Holocaust. Now, although that may answer the question, it doesn't make anybody happy. It doesn't really satisfy people, so it doesn't really help the purpose. Because like I said, you want to answer the questioner, not just the question. So, um, but Carbonos, I've never really found that this is an issue that's really bothering people too much. But it's a great question to ask a rabbi because they usually gag, you know, and that's fine. So, um, so he said to me, okay, what about animal sacrifices? And I said, what about it? That threw him off completely. He says, uh, well, it's, it's barbaric. I said, why? Because barbarians do it. I said, barbarians eat lunch. Do you eat lunch? But you're killing an animal. I said, are you a vegetarian? I says, no. I said, how do you think they get the meat? You go to a cow and say, hi, can you spare a rib? <laughs> That's where spare ribs come from. <laughs> so I'm not there when it happens. I said, oh, is that the problem? No problem. You can appoint a hit Kohen to take the cow out for you. You don't have to do it. Don't worry about it. That's the part that's bothering you? <laughs> So the person was so upset because he really wasn't that invested in the whole question to start with, and he really just wanted to see me look uncomfortable, and instead, um, I looked comfortable. So I said, let me rephrase your question. I understand there might be a benefit to killing an animal if it serves a purpose, like me getting a hamburger, but what is the purpose of bringing a korban? Is that your question? Um, yeah. Oh, oh good, because the Ramban answers that. And that was it. And I was in very comfortable territory. But I couldn't have done that six months earlier because when he would have said to me, what about animal sacrifices? I would have gone, and then, you know, and then tried to save myself from there. If you're really not comfortable with something, don't answer the question. You know, you have to first deal with it on your own. There are certain questions people ask me, and I say, don't ask me that question. I can't answer that question. You know, only because, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I won't be able to say it in a way that'll have, you know, meaning to you or, or be able to, res- I can't answer it for you. So you have to make sure that you yourself are comfortable with, with the answer that you give. Um, there's a concept of the Gemara which is called a teretz, and then there's something called a dechiyah. There's a time when I answer the question, and then there's something when I remove the question. Sometimes you need to just remove the question, right? I'll, I'll give you that an example in a minute, but I want to just throw in another detail of answering questions. And that is that you have to be able to distinguish the difference between a question and a statement. Don't answer a statement. When people come up to you and say, nah, I think uh, Judaism you know, uh, has no relevance today. That's a statement. It doesn't have a question mark at the end. Even the inflection doesn't work. Sometimes you can make a question just by the inflection. Yeah? I don't know if it's still on, but there used to be a TV sh- game show called Jeopardy. 
where they give you the questions and you have to provide, they give you the answers, you have to provide the questions. So in the 1960s, 70s, sometime before most of my students were born, um, and about 10 years before I was born, according to my revised biography that I'm working on. Um, so uh, this, uh, they had a celebrity Jeopardy with Robert Klein, who was a popular comic back then. And so I don't remember the, what the thing was, but it was something like, he was the first president of the United States. And so he goes, George Washington. He says, me the form of a question. George Washington? <laughs> so sometimes you can use inflection to, there's no inflection, there's no question mark, there's no indication whatsoever that this is a question. I think Judaism is, is, you know, is outdated today. I just go, oh. Because it's not a question. You know? When a person makes a statement, I acknowledge the statement. I don't agree with it. But, you know, is there any point to particularly arguing the point? When, you, when someone makes a statement, whether it's an action or a statement, what are the odds you have had in your life of really being able to change them through argumentation? I'll give you an example which is a little sensitive to me. Um, my father passed away uh, about 18 years ago from lung cancer. Um, I remember when the doctor came to pay a sugar call, one of my brothers said, do you think it was from the smoking? So he says, well, he had lung cancer, heart disease, and emphysema. I'm going to have to say yes on that. You know, He smoked for 50 years. Yeah. And he started, of course, when people didn't know how dangerous it was, etc. You know. And I watched my father die. It is a terrible, terrible thing. At the end, the blood clots were forming in his lungs so quickly that they could not remove them, and he drowned. That's how he died in the end. He drowned in his own blood. It was a horrible thing to watch. And after that, I would see from people smoking, people who were young enough to still be able to repair their lungs. And I would always be shocked by this because I know it's waiting for them at the end of the road. And I'd go over there and I'd speak to them and never once did a guy say, you know, that is such a good point you made. Let me throw away my cigarettes and give up smoking. It never happened. You know, they always go... Mind your own business. Or, I can quit any time. I'm like, how about now? Not now. <laughs> any other time. You know what I mean? Or they'll bring me a story about some guy who lived till 90 and smoked till the end. Or whatever the case happens to be. You know? When I used to teach rabbis, they used to say, what questions can't you answer? So I used to bring this as an example. When people ask me, why do from people smoke? I said, I have no answer to that. I don't have to answer it. So somebody once in my class, they said... Well, there are no studies done on people who smoke for six days and let their lungs rest on the seventh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's try that, you know. Next time I got asked it, I said, well, there's no studies of people who smoke for six days and rest on the seventh. And this cardiologist stood up. <laughs> and he says, oh, I've got the statistics for you, Rabbi. They die like everyone else. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it was a nice try. I tried. <laughs> and I haven't found the noise. So when it's a statement, I don't answer it. Now sometimes, like Rabbi Godley brought the example from Avimelech, he made a statement, which he did was wrong. And Avram did not respond. 
And then he asked the question, what did you see what you did? Because sometimes not answering the statement can inspire the person to ask the question. But you have to see whether or not it's an honest question. I'll give you an example. I was at an NCSY Shabbaton. And uh, I was the faculty. And it was questions from the kids. And this one girl advisor, who wasn't really her place to ask questions, but she decided she was going to, said... Does it bother you when women learn Gemara? Now that's not really a question. Um, it's not even a statement. It's like sort of an emotional attack. You know? I said, bother me? It doesn't really bother me, but most things don't bother me. Maybe things should. <laughs> now that, she got no satisfaction from that. So she said, um, do you allow women to learn Gemara? I said, I don't allow or disallow anything. <laughs> anything else? <laughs> so she said, if a woman asked you if she could learn Gemara, what would you tell her? And I said, what do you care? <laughs> it's clear from the first two statements you made that you think girls should learn Gemara, right? Don't you think girls should learn Gemara? She says, yeah. I said, then why are you asking me for it? You don't care what I think. Well, there might be girls here who do. Anyone who's interested, talk to her. She has a very strong opinion on the matter. <laughs> no, no, I want to hear what she said. No, you don't want to hear what I say. Your mind is already made up. No, 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 let me, uh, okay, fine. Now, I went to answer the question only because she did this in public in front of other people, and I felt I had no choice. But if it was just me and her, I wouldn't have even responded. She doesn't care what I think. It's clear. I said, the Gemara says that a woman who learns Gemara, it's tiflis. Now, however you want to learn that word, it's not good. It, the Gemara says it's not good if a woman learns Gemara. No, that was written for different times. It was talking to different people, and they didn't really understand. And it was talking about women doing this, they didn't understand this, and that. I said, so the Gemara said that it didn't understand women. Right. It didn't know what it was talking about. Right. And why do you want to learn it? <laughs> Now, I was once driving with Moshe Shapiro someplace, <laughs> and someone in the car told this over to him. Even though I have a standing rule that no one should ever tell Ramosha anything that I ever say. And if they do, please don't mention my name. Anyway, <laughs> so the person said this over, and Ramosha said, <laughs> You know, that's not really an answer, you know. And I said, Lachon, Zerak Tafiyah. It just pushes it off. That's not the real reason. I haven't gotten into the real reason why the Gemara suggests that women will not find their fulfillment from, from learning Gemara, etc. You know, and, and if you ever find yourself in those kind of a situations where people actually ask me this question, and most of the time it's men, you know, who ask me this question. So I bring an example. And again, it's just without going into all the spiritual depth of it, like I say, just to try to remove the question and move on to other issues that I think are more important to most people. Yeah? Um, it, was, uh, it was an afternoon, and we were in a room. And I said, is it day outside? And the guy says to me, uh, yeah. I said, how do you know? He says, the sun is shining. I said, I don't see the sun. He says, but you can see it's light outside. I said, maybe it's a giant mirror in space refracting starlight. He says, it wouldn't look like that. 
I said, have you ever seen a giant mirror in space? <laughs> That's exactly what it looks like, you know? He says, no, 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 because I know what time it is. I said, yeah, you see these vents? I knocked everybody out and changed all your watches. It's really the middle of the night. You know, no, no, I would know. How would you know? Um, and I stop for a minute and I say, ladies, is this the stupidest thing you ever heard? And they all go, yeah. And I said to him, you can go on another 20 minutes, can't you? And he goes, yeah. Because guys like to argue. That's what they enjoy. They argue about really inane things. Women like to share their feelings. Men don't have any feelings. We're really not holding back. We just don't have any. Wives ask their husbands, why don't you share your feelings with me? And they're like, okay, what do I do now? Um, Think fast, think fast. Someone once sent me an email. It says, two guys can sit and watch a football game for three hours without either one of them saying a word, and neither one thinks the other one must be angry with him. (laughs) But you watch two girls with no conversation for 15 minutes, and they're like this. Because they got all kinds of stuff going on inside that we, we really did not finish there. But, but Gemara is great for us. As, as, as Rigali pointed out, we have a lot of testosterone. So if we weren't arguing in Gemara, we'd be holding up a liquor store. It's all the same thing to us. I've seen women learn Gemara. It's a whole different experience. It's like caring and sharing, you know? No, that's an interesting point, and I think there's a toastless over here that supports what you're saying. You ever seen men learning Gemara? You idiot! That stupid sort of that poo poo! Who didn't have a Gemara Rebbe who one time hit them? They always hit us. That's a stupid question. Poo! We call that education. First time I taught girls, you know, a girl said something, I said, no, that's wrong. No, that's pretty good, because my rebellion would say things like, shut up, stupid, you know what I mean? And like, I said, that's wrong. And she says, how can you say that to me? You just invalidated me. This is my first time teaching at a seminary, so I was like, what are you, a parking meter? I'll put it in another quarter, you know? Forget it, I lost the whole room. They all do that thing where they start whispering. That is so disgusting. Did you see it? And he calls himself a rabbi. I can't believe it's disgusting. You know what I mean? I was like, okay, okay, I'm sorry. It was too late. I lost everybody. So now no matter what they say, I say, that's an interesting point. I'm just looking for something else. Like the right answer. Yeah. Don't be, you know, it's just, it's a different thing. So this is the way of learning. But I didn't go into all that with this girl because she wasn't interested in hearing what I had to say. And when people aren't, I'm secure enough at this point that when people are not interested in what I have to say, I don't have to say it. You know? I used to write a column on parenting for the Hamadiyah. And I stopped at one point and I said, no, I can, I can, I don't have to write articles anymore. I'll make it easy for you. Don't say 90% of what you want to say. You know? Because uh, they did studies and they found that about 90% of what parents say are destructive. So just don't even bother saying it. And also, no one's listening to you anyway, so it works out well. You know, like, you know. I stopped talking years ago. Not that it always helps. Sometimes I walk into the room and one of my daughters goes, What? I said, I didn't say anything. I saw you looking. So now I walk around like this. So, so sometimes when a person asks the question, I, I don't believe that that's what's really bothering them. I don't believe it. 
I met this guy many years ago who came to Israel and he was going to study the proofs for Mamad Harsinah. Proofs for Mamad Harsinah. Because he really was bothered by this Mamad Harsinah. And he spent six months going through the proofs and evidence for Mamad Harsinah. Yeah? And I see him at the end of six months and I said, how's it going? He goes, I don't know. I said, what do you mean? I don't know if I'm convinced. Really? You just spent six months studying the evidence. Did you find it compelling? Well, I'm not sure. I said, what do you mean not sure? You, you can't have people sit through six months of a trial listening to witnesses and evidence and in the end the jury comes in and says, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know if you think that the evidence is faulty, what's the fault with the evidence? And if you think that the evidence is good, then what's the... I, I, I said, okay, I'll make this easy for you. The reason you're not convinced is because you really don't care if there was a mom at Harsinai. You know why? Because nobody cares. Nobody lies awake at night tossing and turning and saying, did it happen? Didn't it happen? I don't know. A lot of people there. It's a mountain. Um, lightning. I can see the lightning. You think that's the thing that's keeping people up at night? I said, your question is, how come you're not happy? And looks at me and says, yeah, how come I'm not happy? I said, that's your real question. He says, so I just wasted six months. I said, yes, you did. He said, why didn't you say anything to me? I said, because you went to believe me because you were so sure this is your question. Nobody cares about this. Most of the questions that people ask in my experience, they don't really care about and here's the way of, of testing it. When a person asks you a question, you say, that's a great question. There's a wonderful book on the subject called Derech Hashem. I, it's available in English. Would you like to read it? No. <laughs> you know, there's a I, have a... I have a... I'm trying to think of the right term now. I was going to say cassette, but they don't have cassettes anymore. I don't think they use CDs anymore. I think it's a download. Download! Right, download, because you can download my shiram from my website, RabbiOrlowski.com. That's right. Because I only have so many DVDs out there to buy. So if you want to download the shiram directly to your little device that downloads things, I just got emailed last week, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but, you know, assuming that you want to download it. So I said, there's a download of a shear on this topic. Would you like to listen to it? No. People don't want to read a book. They don't want to listen. But this is such an important question that I just don't even know how to move on with it. So therefore, I give them a dachia. I give them an answer that will satisfy them so that you can move on to the real issues. For me and you, there's only one question that people have. And they want to know, how can I be happy and have a better life? And that's the real question. I was giving you questions that are very hard to answer. I'll give you another one. Yeah, this is probably my hardest. You know, people, I, I talk to not from people, and you know, you, you, well, how beautiful Yahudis is and Torah and all the nice things, you know. And they say to me, well, if Judaism is so wonderful, how come when I walk into so many from neighborhoods, people look so miserable? Now, I've been saying this for about 20 years, and finally somebody ratted on me already all the way. I went to Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim in Israel in 1975, ten years before I was born. And, uh, and um, 
uh, Rabbi Olu was my Bikiyas Rebbe. So, like, you know, people call him, you know, my Rebbe, but he really was my Rebbe, like, you know, for real. Anyway, so he calls me up and he says to me, David, you can't say that. You, you can say people look miserable, but you can't say they're miserable. And I said, Rebbe, you're right. But I've been saying this for 20 years, and no one ever said that to me. When I ask from audiences, how come you walk from neighborhoods people look so miserable? No one ever said that. They explain why they look so miserable. We've got lots of kids, and they're close together, and it's very expensive. And you know how hard it is? You know how much pressure there's on me? You know what it is to make Pesach? You know what it is to make Shabbos? You know how many things we have on our heads? You got to look at the kids, and you have to get your kids into school, and you got to get your kids married. Do you have a shit of crisis? You know what it is? You don't have to go. Did I mention about the money? You know how expensive it is? You know, we're working, we're both working, both jobs. We're working so hard, I don't get to see the kids, and even when I do, they don't talk to me, they don't like it. You know how hard it is? Did I mention the money? You know how expensive it is? You know, you know, you know, you know. So, that's a problem. <laughs> If people don't see us, yeah, okay, there's a chumash here, so I'm going to use it. Yeah, I wasn't going to, but it's here anyway, so why not? This is the art school version, which Chumash Baruch Hu gave to Moshe Kainu. I've always found it surprising because I didn't know that the Ten Commandments had an overview. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time, my first trip since, uh, you know, since November, really, so. Um, if I look like I'm having too good a time, I'm sorry. I apologize. Anyway, um, this is something that we all know. Yeah? Um, when Yosef brings Yaakov to meet Paro. And you may have even heard this bar beforehand. Um... How old are you? It's a little rude. First time you read somebody like, wow, how old are you? You know? Yeah? I'm 130 years old. I have a long, hard life. I haven't lived as long as my father's. So what was the conversation? He knew that when Yaakov came down to Mitzrayim, the famine stopped. He also saw that whenever he walked out to the Nile, the warders came up to greet him. And he understood all this came in the source of Yaakov Avinu, and he can't wait to meet this person. The guy walks in and looks like he's about to drop dead. I'm like, oh my gosh, how old are you? He says, I, I'm not that old. I'm only 130. In my family, that's young. You know? And, uh, you know, what can I tell you? I, I, had a, I had a long, hard life. That's what I recall. Right? Says the Medrash, you had such a terrible life. Didn't I save you from Asa and save you from Lavan? Didn't I bring you back Yosef and, uh, and, and, and Shimon and Dina? You know? And all you can do is complain? You're going to lose one year from your life for every year that you complained. So there's 33 words. His father lived to 180, and he lived to 147. He lost 33 years. One year for every word. Yeah? By the way, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's kind of harsh. Because you could say, well, didn't I save you from, you know, loving an Asa? Because, yeah, but by the same token, you know, my, uh, you know my, my uncle and my brother were trying to kill me. You know, it's, 
it takes a toll on the guy, you know, even if I come out of there all right, you know. Granted, you know, my daughter was kidnapped and raped, and I did get her back, which I think is a good thing, but, you know, it's kind of hard on a dad, you know, and uh, I did lose my beloved son for like 22 years, you know, so cut me a little slack here, you know. But he's saying, if you're complaining that life is so hard, then the best gift I can give you is to shorten it. So, unfortunately, it makes sense. You know, people who complain all the time, life is so terrible, life is so terrible, you know. My first brother to get married was not having children right away. It's a decision him and his wife made. And my father was desperate to become a grandparent. Um, as a father and a grandparent, I can tell you that becoming a parent is somewhat under your control. Becoming a grandparent has nothing to do with you. It all depends on your children. And if they decide not to have children, you're kind of stuck on this, you know? You can adopt grandchildren, but it's not the same. Because <laughs> if you're going to waste all that money, let it be on a blood relation, you know? But anyway, um, so, uh, so he wanted to have children. And he said this time, my father would always give him a hard time. So he, he took advantage of this, because every now and then my father would get upset at one of the kids and say, ah, kids, they're no good. They just break your heart. Doesn't matter what you do for them. They don't appreciate it. And my brother would go, yeah, that's why I'm not going to have any. My father would be like, what? Children are my life. That's what I live for. Everything's for my kids. <laughs> so you got to be careful when you complain about how terrible life is. The conclusion is that the best gift would be if I shortened it for you. And that's what the first prophet said to him. But Rechayish Malavitz points out a problem with this, and that is, there's only one way to get to 33 words, and that's to include Pyro's question. Without that, you don't get to 33. So I understand you want to punish, you know, Yaakov for what he said, but what do you want to punish him? Because Pyro asked him a question. Rechayish Malavitz says, because if you're a firm Jew, and somebody looks at you and says... Why do you look so miserable? That's a condemnation of everything we stand for. If people don't look at you, and I've had this experience, where people say to me, you know, Rabbi, you're a serious challenge to my secular lifestyle. I said, really, which class did I give? He says, no, I don't listen when you talk. <laughs> I said, okay, so what is it? Because I'm living the secular lifestyle and I can do whatever I want and I do. And I know you're living this restrictive lifestyle and I can't help but feel you're having more fun in life than I am. And I say, kills you, doesn't it? <laughs> That's right, loser. <laughs> Being from is the ultimate party. <laughs> you are missing it, isn't it? <laughs> you know? But if people look at you and they say, well, I don't know what that person has, but, it's, but it looks like it's something really great. And the flip side of that is, if people look at us and they don't see that, you know how difficult it is to answer any question and explain to people, even if the burden of evidence is on your side. But at the end of the day, if you don't feel it, come on, those of us who learn tomorrow, you know, and you can give me 10 10 roots in what you're learning tomorrow. And there are a lot of different answers. Yeah, most of them are incorrect. You know, it sharpens your mind. Do crossword puzzles. Also sharpens your mind. You know, the American legal system was based on the Gemara. Shkayef. So look for a lawyer who learned Gemara. What do I need it for? You know what I mean? Um, it helps you posket. I don't plan to be a posting. Guess what? 
I'll buy myself, you know, the Oscar Big Book of my Macronin, you know what I mean? And I'll find out everything I need right there. I don't have to learn the Sigis and the Chulim, you know? What do I need this for? You know, well, it, it, it's relevant to your life. Oh, come on. I don't have an ox and I don't plan on buying one, you know? I don't run through the streets with pictures, you know? If I'm going to marry a woman, it'll be with a ring, not with a piece of silk of indeterminate value, you know? <laughs> if I divorce, it'll be in Basin. I won't throw a get from my roof into her futzer where it burns on the way down. <laughs> Relevant to my life, you know? I'll tell you the real reason to learn Gemara. This is the true reason to learn Gemara. Yeah, and it's only from the years that I've spent going to Shiva by Rabbi Shapiro that I can understand this. It's because everything is connected, and you don't even know how. And so that's why it never occurred to me that that obscure Mishnah of a Chati Eben and Chati Ben Chori which we remember doing in, in Yeshiva, you know, the two guys buy an Evan, one of them frees him, and he's a half Evan, who would guess that that holds the entire meaning of Tekiyah Shaifah in Rosh Hashanah? Trust me, I never would have imagined it, you know? And there's so many things that seem so incredibly arcane that you would never realize have direct relevance to my life. And that's, that's the real reason to learn it. But it has nothing to do with that. Because the Rebbe can tell you from today to tomorrow how important this is and how wonderful it is and how sweet is the taste of Tyre and all these stories of Hasmada. But at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy it, the odds are you won't do it. You know? How many people daven? And of those, how many daven? Right? Nothing about people who push the automatic, you know, daven button. Okay. Granted, not everybody has that much kavod. Yeah. <laughs> I've been in shul where I take three steps backwards, and the guy next to me goes, "I said that's impossible. <laughs> there's just no way. There's just nothing. There's no way you could have you could have thought that fast. You know what I mean? Like you know, you know these people, you know these people who forget Yalla Yavo, You know, like." The Yalavi Yavu shuffle, you know what I mean? <laughs> How come people don't daven? It's a simple answer. Because people don't like it. Most people don't enjoy davening. There's a lot of reasons for this, but it's true. One reason is that we have worked hard to find the most annoying tunes to teach children how to daven with. I don't even know if they still use this one. Ashrei Yoshvei Vesecha Oyech Hazela Ashrei Yamshekachal You have no idea how annoying that is. From kids have been benching from the time they are three. You know? And it's cute at the beginning until it's like <laughs> By the time they hit no, they just gave up. No, that's what the average teenager benches like this. Can I go? You didn't bench. I did. I'll do it again. Can I go now? We don't enjoy it because we don't know how to make it meaningful and beautiful. If we don't know how to make 
our Yaha does something beautiful. You want to hear a horrible story? Sure you do. <laughs> Everyone does. When I teach in seminary, I teach in a seminary, Dr. Gina now for almost 20 years, so I, I have this thing I call my horror files. You know, every now and then when I'm in a horrible story, I sit in my horror files, I bring it out from my horror files. And by the time they're in shut bed, they're like, I say, oh, I have to go to the horror files. No, don't go to the horror files. Yes, this is in the horror files. You know? All these terrible stories, you know. But um, uh, I had these two girls from the Bay of Shalima over my house for Shabbos. And I said, they, they've been in the Bay for quite a while. I said, where do you usually eat out? They said, we don't. I said, why? They said, it's too painful. I said, why? says, we came from a non-firm background and we turned our back on it. And we go to eat at the homes of these firm people and they're like, wow, did you ever go here? Did you ever do this? Did you ever eat that? Wow. And I realized they're living out their fantasies through me. And I'm so disgusted by what I went through that I just want to forget about it. And I look at firm people who should know better and they look excited by this. I was, when I was teaching in our semantic, I was with uh, Harry Sinclair, who uh, was in the entertainment business. And I was saying there once, and there were three rebellion uh, off to the side. And he says to me, watch this. <clears throat> so I remember the time I said to John Lennon, and everybody turns around. Like, and he says, from my side, would you have turned around as quickly if I said with Shlomo Zaman Orbach? It's like, yeah, okay, fine, you know. <laughs> Right, keep out Shuba having fun at our expense. You know? <laughs> anyway, we go to that conversation. Five minutes later, he goes, and Elizabeth Taylor said to me, and they all turn around again. And he just smiled. Because, you know, there's this excitement out there. There's this excitement that, oh, wow. There's nothing, there should be nothing better in the world than being a firm Jew. There should be no greater happiness, no greater fulfillment, no greater purpose. That's the biggest question, and we have to answer that question for ourselves before we can answer it for anybody else. And when people ask us questions, you know, you should get yourself a notebook and write down any question, not that you don't know the answer to, but that you're not comfortable answering. Because it could be you got an answer, and uh, it just didn't do it for you. Yeah? Um, I was going to say I'm out of time, but the last time I thought of that phrase, it had very terrible implications. So, <laughs> let's just say I should really finish up this talk now. <laughs> I just want to end with one, with one great, great story, and then we'll do a quick review. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> that's how my friend Pesachron always ends this year, you know. I want to end with a great story and a quick review of everything we've said, you know. Um, and uh, Baruch Hashem, I've known him for many years. I learned a lot of things from him. One thing he taught me is never name drop famous people that you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> he said he heard that from Reverend Frank. So just heard it. <laughs> anyway. So the first time I was half invited to speak at the Aguda Convention, there was another time that I was actually invited to speak, you know, and for real. <laughs> and I said to them, 
you know, aren't you a little nervous to invite me because I have a reputation for being a little controversial? And the person said, yes, we thought about this. <laughs> so you'll be speaking to the women for Shalashudas. <laughs> and uh, you'll do the closing. And uh, we basically only gave you slots where none of the Rashi Yeshiva will be at. And I said, I, I was just kidding. I didn't realize it was actually a meeting in the Aguda. How can we invite Orlovsky and minimize the amount of damage that you can do? So. But there was a time before that that somebody really pushed me to come. And they put me on a roundtable discussion about Kira Rechotin, which was not a roundtable. It was actually a square table. And they had a lot of Balabatim and professionals representing different organizations. The people in the audience were all the top people in the field. And the people on the, the table were mostly, you know, professionals who helped the organizations. And each one talked about their organization and why we should support it, you know. And at the end, you know, the person who was chairing it looks at me and says, do you want to say something? And I said, no. Everyone's gone on here for much too long. There's really nothing that anyone's interested in. You know, leave me out. He says, okay. I'd like now to introduce Robert Olavsky to say a few words on this topic. So, okay, you, it's your own fault. You have no one to blame but yourself at this point. Right? So I get up and I say, someone asked me a question. Why are we wasting all this money on Kira Hogan? We have so many problems in our own communities. You know how many people can't get their kids into yeshiva? You know, and people are fighting to try to get in. And I know people send their kids to public school. You know, I've met some people who've decided not to have any more children because they can't afford the tuitions. Could you imagine an educational system, a Torah educational system that encourages from Jews not to have children? You realize there's a serious problem here, and we're wasting all our money on Kira. Does this make any sense? So maybe we should be asking ourselves why we have to get involved in Kira for Hogan. And maybe the answer is because we're in trouble. And I started to talk about all the problems in the front community. <laughs> well, the room exploded. Because everyone in the audience were all top people in Kiev. And everybody made different points, etc., etc., you know? And uh, I, I agree with Rabbi Olasky. Rabbi Olasky's right, you know? And you could see the whole panel had just completely lost control of the event. It was a, I wasn't called uh, for many years after that. But... <laughs> for obvious reasons. I think the finish was they called me that first time. But anyway, and I remember Jonathan Rosenblum, who was in the audience, stood up, and he said, have you ever asked yourself why? Most of the books on Hashkafa are written by people who did not grow up in the from world and going to yeshivas. He mentioned specifically Rabbi Katz, although he didn't name all of his books, like, uh, you know, the Jew, Judaism, and Buddhism, and, uh, you know, a number of other ones which will be available for sale, and uh, which I can highly recommend, because you walk into any yeshiva seminary, who's not reading World Mask, or, or, or one of the other, you know, amazing books that Mary Katz wrote. I think he was nice enough to sit here and listen to me. He deserves at least that much, but... But, but, the, but that's exactly what John says. Everyone, most of the books on Hashkaf are written by people like, you know, like, like Dr. King Katz, you know, things like that, you know, people coming from says, because we went to school and we asked a question in third grade and we got an answer in third grade and we were happy with that for the rest of our lives. And people who came in after university education asked the same questions on a university level and demanded a university level answer. And they weren't content with just because that's the way that it goes. You know? It's not enough for us just to be able to feel like, well, I don't know, that's what I've always heard. Can you answer this if somebody pushes you on this and gives you, can you answer this question? Can you, can you give the answer correctly? And if you can't, 
And forget about answering it for anybody else. We have to answer it for ourselves. And once we can answer it for ourselves, most of the time we don't even have to answer the question. I've had students of mine who said, Rabbi, I can say over your answer, but I can't do that little laugh that you do at the end. And that's really what answers the question. Because when people realize you're not bothered by this question at all, it really shakes them up. They, they, they start to realize that, wow, this guy seems like he's intelligent, and he seems like he's having a good time, and this question seems to him not to be so much of a question. And those 5-10% who are really intellectuals, you know, and, and that Ergali was speaking about, will take it further, and everything that I say has to be taken further. But we live in the era of the soundbite, and that's, that's how people make decisions, unfortunately, you know? Uh, email was too big for people. They had to come up with Twitter. Because whatever you have to say, you have to say in 128 characters. You know? So we don't have time for punctuation and grammar and syntax and, and facts. We, we, just, we just Twitter something. You know, just shoot it out. You know? And that's how points come across and that's how we communicate. And we want to try to explain something at a very deep level. You know? As Ramesha Shapiro said not to me, but about me. <laughs> that's not an answer. That's, that's true. But the point is to be able to clear the way of Mahmoud Harsinai so someone can deal with the real issue. How can I live a happy, meaningful life? What does Judaism have to say to me that's going to make my life a better life? And that's the answer that we need to be able to find for them. Thank you very much.